happy Saturday, everybody, and welcome back to House Talk Pregame. I am licensed couple marriage and family therapist and sports family therapist, Dr. Lauren Pence, Santa Claus. Morning, everybody. Morning. My name is Ronnie Ransom, and welcome to episode 128 of House Talk Pregame. How is everybody doing this morning? It's doing good. It's doing 80 good. free. It's 83 degrees in, in Fort Worth already. Oh Lord, it's 70. We we can finally see the sun again in the in the blue sky. Um I heard y'all been in under smoke and such up there. Yeah, for those who don't know, uh the entire uh northeast uh was covered in a wildfire smoke um from Canada all week. Um, even though I haven't seen that one video of a wildfire in Canada, they said that's where the smoke came from. So that's what I'm going to say on this public platform that is sponsored by Facebook right now, that yes, it was a smoke fire from Canada that came all the way down to Virginia and we couldn't see for four days and breathe. So yeah, now we can finally see the blue sky again. I'm, I'm glad it's still blue. I thought it might've changed colors while we were gone because it was a little orange for a while. But yeah, I'm gonna stop rambling about it before they pull up at my house tomorrow morning asking me more questions no. about what I know. Excuse me. <laughs> we do have a special guest with us this morning, Mr. Micah Duwani. Good morning, sir. How are you, man? Morning, good morning. I'm good. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Um, I'm excited for the conversation uh, and I'm looking forward to it. Yes, sir. Yes, I mean, we're, we're excited to have you on, man. It's an honor to have you on here today. We got a lot of great things to talk with you about. There's a lot of things that you also want to share, too, about some great things you got going on in your world and whatnot. So we're going to get into that in a few. Um, so, uh, Dr. Pitts, do you have a, um, a mental health tip of the week this morning? I do. Uh-oh. What you got, what you got I, for I, us? I do. Um, because it, it, it ties into um, what our topic is today and and when we think about how we're increasing these conversations around sports and mental health, I think that it's really important for coaches and athletes to understand that there are actually some best practices that mm -hmm. should be put in place to help us to address the mental health concerns that our athletes may be experiencing. And I'm, I'm not gonna go into all of them, but there's two in particular that I wanna emphasize. And the first one is, well, actually three. The first one is, I think that it's really important for our coaches to understand the importance of expressing empathy. I've shared on the show before how some of the athletes that I have worked with have literally expressed to me that they are terrified of, you know, having vulnerable and transparent conversations with the coaching staff out of fear that they were going to be benched, out of fear that they were going to lose their starting spot, out of fear that they were going to be clowned about having mental health issues. And then just like we, we talk about from a, a, a racial or ethnic perspective, we have these microaggressions, those types of, of ignorant comments exist where mental health is concerned too, which creates unsafe spaces for our athletes to feel comfortable sharing with their coaches that they're struggling in their mental health. So we can't emphasize enough how important it is to express empathy to your athletes and to create a safe space for them so that they know that they can actually come to you and let you know if they're struggling in their mental health. The other part of that is the flip side of the coin where you, I believe, and, and, and I know, Micah, you're going to speak to this as a coach, and, and Ronnie, you probably will also, but I think that coaches have a responsibility to ask their athletes what they need. Ask their athletes what is going on with you and your mental health. Just do periodic check-ins. You don't necessarily have to wait until you see something wrong. That could be too late right? You want right. to take proactive measures in asking your athletes from time to time. I would even go as far to say, create a, a team culture where you're doing mental health check-ins, where you can check in with your athletes and ask them what's going on with them. What do you need? Not anything that has to do with the sports piece, but what do you need? How can I help particularly if an athlete feels comfortable sharing with you, well, you know what, coach, I'm struggling a little bit, 
well, you know what, coach, my grandpa passed or my grandma passed or my girl broke up with me or whatever the case may be. And, and I haven't been able to shake it. And I'm starting to feel a little bit depressed and, and be able to have those transparent conversations. Don't let your athletes walk around with their superhero cape on, just pounding their chest, whether they be male or female, it's talking about, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. What, you know, when somebody says that to us clinically, what do we say? Well, what does that mean? Right. I'm good. What, well, what does that mean? What, is, what does that look like? Good is not a feeling. Yeah, exactly. Now I'm quick it, to pull out my feelings chart too. Me too. Me too. It's like, I, if I walked into a room, how would I know that you are good? What am I going to see? What am I going to hear? What is going to be my emotional experience interacting mm -hmm. with you that informs me authentically that you really are fine or that you really are all good? So you definitely want to create that space. Have that open door policy where you can invite your athletes in and just do those periodic mental health check-ins with them. And then the last thing is, as coaches and as teammates, we each have the ability, and I would go as far to say the responsibility to destigmatize mental health concerns. If we are contributing to the stigma, then we by default are not creating safe space to have those substantive conversations that could be the difference between life and death for some of our athletes. And, and just to, to close out this tip, the same applies to coaches. Coaches aren't invincible. Coaches are human beings. They're, I would go as far to say is that if a coach is struggling in their mental health, there it may be evident to the other coaches, it may be evident to the players, and there needs to be this fluid exchange of expressing empathy, of asking, of destigmatizing, the, the issue around mental health concerns so that all of us can feel safe to be vulnerable and transparent because what we don't want, and as someone that has received this call, I'm, I'm so thankful that I have not received the call as a clinician, but I've received it as a family member and a friend too many times that somebody that I love and care about has taken their own life. I am here to tell you, you don't ever want to get that call. You right. do not ever want to get that call. So that's all I have. Be mindful that there are best practices that we can each demonstrate in helping to address the mental health concerns that exist in the athletic arena. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Pearson. I think, especially towards the end when you mentioned about, you know, um, how coaches' mental health can also come out through their work and through how mm -hmm. they interact with their uh, teammates or well, with their players and everything. Mm -hmm. I it made me think for a second. I was like, I wonder, I wonder how much of that is like. I feel like you can tell, and I think Michael, you can also speak on this too. You come across some coaches where, like, they understand the the meaning of being stern and being, you know, hardened in a way where it's effective, like them being the quote unquote a-hole coach works and benefits them. But then you have coaches who think they have to, you know, have almost imposter syndrome and they have to personify themselves as an a-hole, as somebody who's stern. And it comes off as, as ingenuine. It comes off as fake. It comes off as, you know, that's not who you really are because I've seen you off the field. I've seen how you are with other people. You're really trying really hard to do this and get this message across for some reason. And that right there can really cause a fracture, not only amongst the team, but also amongst the coaching staff as well. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned that because I wonder, you know, we talked about it, you know, especially in other previous episodes where, you know, as much as we offer the mental health services to the players and everything, and rightfully so, you know, I hope that the coaches also have that ability to get the mental health help they need too, because we know quickly um, in Dr. Pitts, you know, especially in other professional areas where if you're deemed to be, you know, have a, um, a mental health diagnosis, sometimes that can be used against you, whether it's with promotions, whether it's with, you know, really being a part of uh, team projects and stuff like that to help grow within the company. Um, so being able to have that safe space as a coach to be able to express your mental health and not have other people looking at you like, well, can you do the job? Can you maintain this amount mm -hmm. of responsibilities with what comes with the job and everything? I think that's really mm -hmm. important too. So thank you for mentioning that. Uh, mm -hmm. Michael, did you want um, to add anything to that or did you have your own mental health tip of the week that you would like to share uh, for our listeners? Um, I think adding to <laughs> so far, 
I started to think about when you talked about certain coaches that put on a persona, I started to think about this need to assert your dominance. I feel like that's mm-hmm. where it comes from. But I think when we're talking about mental health and sports, we're talking about creating safe spaces for our athletes and for really the entire environment, the entire ecosystem in a sports program. And when you're trying to do that, when you actually want to do that, I think you have to put your ego to the side. And that doesn't mean you have to be a pushover and be like, hey, guys, do what you want. You know, you don't have to do that. But I think this need to like, I'm the boss. I need to assert myself. I need to show that I'm Mr. I mean business. I think you have to put your ego to the side for the sake of mm-hmm. creating a healthy ecosystem. And I think if you really care about mental health, you're going to have to face that head on and actually be mm-hmm. genuine. So that's what mm-hmm. I would add to the conversation. But mm-hmm. that's point spot on. I want I want to piggyback on that, Micah, that is such a powerful, powerful point, because I think about conversations, Ronnie, that you and I have had about, you know, how home life can Mm -hmm. impact how you all show up in, in your sports environment, right? And I, as I reflect on a couple of coaches um, that I have had on my caseload and you know, even coaches, umpires, train like I, I literally the the full gamut, right? And as I reflect on, for example, where marital problems are concerned, and the mm-hmm. depression that's coming into play, it, re- it reminds me of a conversation that I had um, with a former client about how the their their head wasn't in the game. And they were, in this particular instance, the individual was umping a game. And it was just like, you know, the fans and the players are ready to kill the person. Because it's like, you, what is up with all these bad calls? That was not a strike. That was not a ball. That right. and, it, and recognizing that. So when we talk about mental health, we're not necessarily saying that the person has to have a diagnosed mental illness. We're not saying that. Mental health is so much more than that. Think about it as your overall mental state of being. So even though you might not have a formal mental health diagnosis, you can have things going on in your life, personally or professionally, that are impacting how you're expressing yourself and how you're behaving. So for example, with what you said, Micah, if you're dealing with, and I'm going to use this example as as a male coach or a male player or a male trainer, whoever the case may be, and you're going through things at home where you're being emasculated. Oh, well, guess where the ego comes out when you, when you get to work, <laughs> right? You're knocking folk in the head. You beating yourself in the chest. You're roaring and growling because, you know, you have zero power at home mm-hmm. because you're being emasculated and you end up being that a-hole coach or that a-hole trainer or, or a-hole ref or whomever because you've got all of these issues going on in your personal life that are informing how you're showing up at work and folk don't know they just think you're a butthole but in right. actuality <laughs> you are a butthole <laughs> but, but you're a butthole with a backstory that is tied to your overall mental well-being being eroded that is informing you showing up, if I could give credit where credit is due and and extend some grace, you're showing up as a less authentic version of yourself because of the taxation that you're experiencing psychologically because of personal problems going on at home. So I just wanted to add that because I was a really, 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 like people aren't just full ego for no reason. (laughs) There's an antecedent to, to why your ego is as big as New York City. Absolutely. And a lot of times it's insecurity. <laughs> that we can have a whole separate conversation about that right there. Absolutely. Well, thank you for both of y'all sharing that. Thank you for Michael for sharing, um, adding to the mental health tip of the week. So let's get on to this topic real quick. So our topic for today is coaching team, what every player should know. Um, and what better than to have a uh, coach in with us this morning. So Michael, I'm going to uh, tell the people a little bit about yourself and then I want you to uh, add in because you are the expert to view, man. So, Micah, you were the youngest nationally licensed soccer coach in the region at at the tender age of 16. And from there, but you're more than just a former footballer and a current soccer coach, man. 
You're also a public speaker, executive producer, humanitarian, two-time published author, with your first book being Step Into My Shoes, Memoirs from the Other Side of America, and most recently, as of January, Battle Scars and Blossoms, A Journey Through the Mind. So, Michael, once again, man, welcome on to House Talk Pre-Game, man. <clears throat> um, so, man, for the people who have never heard of you before, man, tell the, tell the people a little bit about yourself and how you got to be where you are today, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so I always like to say I've had a very unorthodox journey. Um, and as you kind of listed off, you know, some of what I've done, it's, it's kind of a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there. I think I've always defined myself as a curious person. But it all started with sports, which is part of why we're here talking today. Mm -hmm. I grew up playing soccer. I was an academy soccer player. It's actually funny because I didn't want to play at first. Uh, my, my dad was really big on soccer. My mom was a track athlete. So sports was in my household, but I, I refused to play at first. Uh, and then when I turned, I think seven, I just decided I wanted to give it a try. And I quickly found out that my skill level was pretty high. So I, I joined a bigger academy, one, one that played in serious national tournaments and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And I continued to play and grow in my career, uh, mm -hmm. which ended up being pretty short because at 15, um, I, I discovered I had a heart condition, which oh, wow. brought my athletic journey to an end pretty quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. There were some really traumatic moments, um, collapsing episodes and things like that, oh, that, that were literally life or death. And speaking about mental health and sports, that's when my mental health really suffered as an athlete, uh, was through those times, uh, especially when I figured out I had to leave playing behind. So at 15, it was pretty much quits. I, I actually couldn't get cleared by my doctors anymore. They were like, we're not clearing you to play because if you go out there and something happens to you again, they're gonna be like, why didn't you stop it? So I couldn't get cleared anymore after 15. So, I mean, you guys probably know that's that's pretty young in an athletic yeah. career. Um, yes. for me, so much of my identity was in being an athlete. So much of my drive and purpose was in that so to have that just ripped away at 15, I started to think about really just how do I honor the gift of life that I still have and what, and what can I do? And, and as an athlete, my schedule was always packed every week. And so to have just complete free time after school, I had so much time to just get into different things. So the first thing I did was when I turned 16, I got my first national coaching license in soccer. I figured I could, I could still connect to the game in that way. And you had to be 16 to get this. I had to wait a full year and then take my exams and take my coursework. And I got my first license there. And I started a nonprofit training business just to get my feet wet and get in the door and start to practice. And then I started to make a buzz for myself around the Miami area. Um, and then I got, I got offers to start managing as an assistant coach for teams. I got to be the assistant coach for my varsity program at my school. And then my name continued to buzz from there, which led to academy contracts. So I got my first nice. academy position when I was 18, coaching at this under 15 academy. And that's kind mm -hmm. of where my coaching career continued. But then, like I said, I had so much free time because I wasn't playing. So I got into different things like writing. In college, I published my first book, Step Into My Shoes. It was three years ago. It was around the time of, of the Black Lives Matter movement, honestly. So it had nothing yeah. to do with sports. It was really just looking at what was happening to Black people and the amount of misinformation really that was coming around the mm. black people were talking about mm. fictitious stuff about what it meant to be black. And so mm. I called yeah. the book step into my shoes because I was like, this is what we're going through. This is not fabricated, this is real life. Right. And so that book kind of got me into public speaking and social justice projects and mental health mm -hmm. conversations. And I also got into psychology, studying that at, um, in college and university. Um, which influenced my second novel, I mean, my, my second book, which is a novel called A Battle mm -hmm. Blossoms, A Journey Through the Mind. Um, speaking of, you know, the mental health stigmas, I really got into how do we engage in those conversations, but also disarm people and not make it. Mm -hmm. And so I figured writing a novel where people can just, just get lost in the story, you know, kind of like hiding the medicine in the juice in a way, you know, so yeah, I yeah. Feel, I can still talk about mental health stigmas, but I could just kind of sneakily put it into a story. So I published that January of last year, and it's kind of just been all hands on deck with writing, with speaking, with coaching, with mm -hmm. advocacy. 
it's kind of just been all hands on deck and, and just pursuing all these things at the same time. So yeah, it's it's a lot, but I'm I'm a curious person. I'm passionate, um, mm-hmm. and I think that's why all of us are really here today. So right, man. Yeah. Oh oh oh! I got questions. I got questions. <laughs> Ladies first. Thank you. Oh my goodness, my God! You're like a walking miracle, sir. So my first question for you is: You know who Demar Hamlin is? Yes. Yes. How did that incident on national tv impact you did it impact you yeah i mean it just it reminded me of my own experiences Mm -hmm. and what i started to think about i saw that he recently joined training again uh, practice again so i I started to think about what that does to your mind after because i know for me my mental health declined after because i was so worried about things happening again yeah. So when I was thinking about when I was thinking about him, I was thinking about if he recovers and everything's fine, you know, God willing, I was hoping for that. I was like, if he doesn't yeah. play again, I hope he can keep his his tunnel vision and, and to be able to play freely and not think about what happened. For me, I have flashbacks all the time about when I collapsed and when I was on the floor, you know, blacking out and things like that. And and it's it's, 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 it's those moments where you're like, this is life or death, you know, in a yeah. real yeah. Um, And I think nobody really prepares you for how to deal with that psychologically right. afterwards. Um, in my case, I didn't have access to, you know, a sports psychologist. My, my academy didn't, didn't have a sports psychologist, so I was kind of just left mm-hmm. to figure it out with my parents. And so I'm, hope, I'm hoping he has resources to better right. his family relax himself because trying to just adjust to a norm and say okay I can play freely now it's not as easy as it seems so that was kind of what my mind went to when I thought of him absolutely any any injury you know especially when we you know uh, whether it's heart injury head injury with concussions um we start talking about ACL shoulder ligaments and things like that any of those injuries that sit you down for a long time and your first time getting back out there uh, I remember when I had uh, my knee injury, when I first tore my meniscus, um, I didn't know enough about the process. I didn't know enough about the recovery process to know that, you know, when you don't walk for six weeks, you got to first learn how to walk again and then get the muscles back firing. So by the time I came off of crutches, it was two and a half weeks before the season started. I didn't know enough at, you know, at, at 20 to know the proper uh, process of rehab and things like that. Mm-hmm. I just thought, okay, I come off crutches, I carry on and get going back, get, you know, get back to doing what I was doing. And just like you said, it's, you know, your mental health really starts to decline when you realize like, oh, I can't push off this leg like I used to right now. I can't make this step like I used to. I can't cut like I used to. Like, so now you start thinking. And we know as athletes, one of the worst things you can do in the middle of a play, in the middle of a game is think. It has to be muscle memory. It has to be second nature. It has to be almost subconscious at that point because you've practiced it so much during the week. You've practiced practiced it so much during the season. But the moment you get out there thinking, the moment you get out there hesitating, I always tell people that's the difference between a sack and a touchdown. That's the difference between a first down and a turnover of downs is that half a second, that tenth of a second of you just contemplating. Just being stuck for that tenth of a second is the difference in you feeling like yourself and questioning your entire athletic career and abilities because of not having the proper resources mentally more so than physically for any type of injury. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And thank you for that question, Dr. Piss. That was a really good question. Um, Micah, I also wanted to ask you as well, um, speaking about becoming one of the youngest nationally uh, coaches in your region and everything, talk about that process. You know, you talked about um, just that transition of, you know, being a footballer and then all of a sudden having to, you know, find, you know, find that same passion and channel that passion into something that you could really, you know, invest in. And you found that in coaching. What was that like becoming a 16 year old coach, especially when you're coaching people who are either your age or slightly older? What was that like kind of coming into that role? And who were some of the other coaches that you leaned on to model your coaching style after? Great question. So the first thing I want to say is that it seems really cool in theory. And then once you start, oh, man, you have to work for your respect. Uh, I know becoming the assistant coach of my varsity program, that was 
a biggest challenge, the biggest challenge because we practice right after school. Mm. And so I'll be in calculus with my friends at two o'clock. Like, okay, let's work out this equation. Right, we got a test coming up. Then an hour later, I'm holding a whistle. Let's <laughs> let's run these laps, blah, blah, blah. Brother, I was just with you in calculus. <laughs> that, that, that was difficult at first, you know, to, to really earn my respect and be seen as somebody with a higher intellect to be able to coach. Mm -hmm. So I, I had my work cut out for me, but I mean, I, was, I wasn't afraid of hard work. So I did the work, did the coursework and learned. Um, but yeah, that was tough. As far as who I modeled uh, my coaching after, the whole reason I even was so open to getting my license at 16 was because I had a coach who during my whole heart catastrophe situation, he said to me, Michael, whenever you used to play soccer, I was a midfielder. So I was like the controller. I was mm -hmm. the guy who settled the tempo of the game. And my coach was always like, Michael, you have a higher knowledge of the game. You can break it down. You can see the field in a different way. So I think you'd be a great coach. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I looked at him like, I mean, you've worked with me for the past five, six years. So I should listen to you. So I listened to him and went and got my license. And then he was a big mentor for me. His name was Coach Aaron, and he was just, he was always there for me, giving me tips, telling me to take things slow, and really telling me to learn. And then I think also my, my the high school head coach, mm -hmm. who I played varsity the year before my heart problem, so he knew me as a player, and then I became his assistant, so we already had a relationship, and he kind of took me under his wing and was just like, soak up everything you can. You, don't, you might not have questions, but you might just need to watch me, watch how I do things watch how I command the world, things like that, uh, and just soak up everything you can and just really be here present in the moment. So I think those two coaches really did a lot for me. Um, but I mean, I pulled from a lot of different coaches, uh, even like watching European soccer, which is where the highest quality of soccer is. I pulled from a lot of different tacticians when I was pulling like formation styles and different tactics. I wanted to be really in tune with how to build a team and how to build like a really attractive playing style. So I pulled from mm -hmm. a lot of European coaches that were doing it on the highest level. So I just tried to learn from everybody. Um, and yeah, like I said, I, have, I had my work cut out for me, but I made it happen and continued. And I think the fact that I'm still here, still continuing to go is a testament to, I guess, my commitment to it all, even in the midst of such uncertainty with the heart problem. Right. I, I did want to ask you um, to do a little deep dive for us because you know, doing all of these things at 16, you also mentioned that you started a nonprofit at 16. So my question is, talk to us about your village, you know, from your parents mm -hmm. to extended family. I didn't get a chance to ask you before the show if you had any siblings, but if you have siblings, talk to us about your village and what were some of the things your village was, was showing you, exposing you to early on? Because um, you mentioned that you were born in Baltimore, moved to Florida in 06 and kind of been, you know, native Miami and since 06 and everything. So having those, you know, two vast, diff vastly different cultures of Northeast Baltimore and everything down all the way down South in Miami, talk about your mm -hmm. village and what were some of the things they showed you along the way to kind of expose you to have those type of ideas at 16 and pursue those dreams at 16, man, because that's absolutely mm -hmm. phenomenal. And I know, yes, you, you, you did the work. Absolutely. But talk to us about your village, man. Man, well, thank you, first of all. Um, I think, so the biggest thing I could always say is that I'm a first generation American. My dad is from Zimbabwe, my mom's from Jamaica. And so having two parents- Ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All types of culturally rich. Goodness right, man. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a tough spot over here, yeah. Um, so, so having two parents from immigrant cultures one thing that's really big outside of Western civilization, I mean, it's big here too in certain communities, but outside of Western culture is collectivism. Thinking about people, thinking about, sometimes here in America, we're very individualistic, like me, 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 right. me. And my Absolutely. parents from outside cultures, they were very big on unity, community, thinking about other people. So I was just raised that way. I'm, I've always been somebody who cares about my community. So I think my pursuit of coaching, you know, writing books about mental health, advocacy work, I think it just came from my heart, what was ingrained in me to care about 
things other than myself. You know, my dad used to always say, who are we as humans if we ignore the suffering of others? That was a quote mm -hmm. he always say growing up like over and over. And so little things like that just influenced me to always care and always have a heart for other people. And so with my nonprofit, for example, one of the biggest issues that affects that affected soccer, it still does, was a pay to play rule. In other countries like Brazil, for example, if you're really good and you're in the trenches and you, you live a rough life, people, the right academies will come and get you and take care of you. They'll be like, we'll put you up in school, we'll get you facilities to train, we'll get you on that step to the next level and you're good. Here, mm -hmm. it's a pay to play rule where academies are like, they, they cost like college tuition sometimes and right. it affects underserved communities. So what my nonprofit wanted to do was target those communities and really bridge that economic gap and get people access to quality training who didn't have the, the uh, economic resources to afford 150 an hour, 200 an hour for training. You know, a lot of people, I couldn't do that when I was playing. Right. So that, that was really the goal of my nonprofit was to target those people because the talent's there, you know, the grit and the drive is there. But if you're like, I remember when I was 11, I had Olympic development trials with the Florida um, development team I made my first trial and then I couldn't go back because I couldn't afford to keep going back. It was like $75 per session. And I just, we didn't have that, you know? And I, I had to I had to travel to like Central Florida, which is about, you know, four or five hours from South Florida. Mm -hmm. And so traveling, the paying for the fees, I just didn't have it. And I could have made the Olympic development team, which who knows what that could have done for my career. And I couldn't go, not because of the talent, not because of the skill, because, because of the money, right. you know? Yeah. So that's a big problem. And that's what I, I tried to tackle with my nonprofit. But yeah, it's always been about the community. That's what my parents have ingrained in me. I have a sister too, and she's a teacher. So she's also big on community, mm -hmm. big on helping people. And that's how we've been raised. So yeah. Man, that's, man, thank you for sharing that, man. That is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. have, you, have, you been to your, uh, have you been to your father's home country in Zimbabwe? Yes, I've been twice. Um, and it's talk about a culture shock. I mean, people drive, people drive let's talk about let's please, please talk, talk about, about it. Yeah, I, I, I always, about I always it. love to hear people's perspectives on going back to Africa and that I want to go so bad. Uh, I'm, I'm biracial. Uh, so my dad is, is uh, African-American. My mom is white, but I want to go to Africa so bad because I just love the history of Africa. And I just want to be amongst the cultures and be amongst the people and everything, because it, one of the things you talked about is, yes, in, in Western civilization, especially in America, we can be so fixated on America's the best. America's got all of this. America's got all of that. You don't need to go nowhere else. You don't need to experience nothing else. And I always tell people, until you really get out of America and go somewhere else, two things. Number one, you really understand a lot of the privileges we have here, 95% of the world do not have. That's number one. Right. Number two, you also learn that a lot of the information you learn about other cultures over here is vastly misinformation until you get over there and talk to the people, really immerse yeah, yeah. yourself in the cultures. And I've had an opportunity to go to places like Jamaica, other Caribbean countries. Um, I've been to um, a few uh, places in Central America and things like that. So I've had a chance to go to other places and really immerse mm -hmm. in the cultures and whatnot. But please speak about that experience of being African-American over here, but also being first generation um, African and also Jamaican as a child, but also being able to immerse yourself in those cultures. Yeah, so my parents tried to expose me as quickly as possible. So my first trip to Zimbabwe, I was two. So I, and I've, been, I've been several times, um, same with Jamaica. I've been uh, since going since I was a kid. I will say going to Zimbabwe was such a culture shock because over here, when I was coming up, everybody only talked about Africa in the context of like huts and lions and zebras. And when I was, when I went, it was so, it was different, but it was also so normal. It was, mm -hmm. it was their norm. So they didn't look at it like, oh, we're out here hunting and blah, 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 blah. They were just like, this is my life. This is how I live. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was really fascinating to see that. I will say, Going as an outsider, kind of. I mean, I'm I'm half Zimbabwean, so I'm not an, I'm not an outsider, like as opposed to I guess a Black American trying to reconnect with several generations back. Right. But still growing up here and then going, 
I was just like, man, without, if, if history went a different way, this would be all any of us knew. Mm-hmm. And, was, and that, that kind of hit me like, I'm over here fascinated like a tourist, like an outsider. But if history had changed in a different way, this would be like everything oh, yeah. that all of us know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so taking a step back there was interesting. But there, I mean, there were little nuances that caught me off guard. One thing I noticed was that um, like at gas stations, you don't get out and pump your gas. People like you sit in a car and people pump your people like workers at the gas station will, will, will get mm-hmm. what do you want. What do you want? OK, and then they'll do it for you. So like little stuff like that was cool. I'll say the food was a, was the biggest, probably the biggest shock to me, how different it tastes. I didn't work mm-hmm. out one time when I was there and I lost 11 pounds just from how much healthier the food is. You know, there's not, wow. as, much, not as much genetically modified things. And and I, was, I wasn't even eating like super healthy. I was eating, you know, chicken <laughs> and desserts and stuff. And I lost 11 pounds without working out once in my la- on my last trip in 2021. Um, and so that that was a big culture shock as well. Um, I'd also say learning about the differences in language. They speak English as well, but you know, they have they have different um, languages that they speak. Like my dad's side speaks a language called Shona, which mm-hmm. as with having an American tongue, like a heavy American tongue, it was super hard for me to try to get the pronunciation mm-hmm. right. But mm-hmm. that being really interesting to be around that. I mm-hmm. think. The last thing I could say, I mean, there's so much I could say. That could be a whole episode about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last thing I would say would be when we think of the war for independence in America, we think of um, 1865 as far as civil rights. And then you think of mm-hmm. America in general, you think of uh, 1776. In Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. it was 1980 that they got their independence. So very, very recent. So it's like a, almost like a newborn country in a way. They were mm-hmm. under colonization and then got their independence in 1980. So everything is new and it's fresh. Mm-hmm. And some of the challenges trying to create a sustainable society for everybody come from the fact that they've only been doing this for a couple of decades on their own. And so mm-hmm. that was so fascinating because here in America, you can get into the problems and issues, but the one fact is that certain things have been established for a long time. And right. over there, it's like, right. 1980, I mean, my dad is older than that. So he grew up during the civil war in Zimbabwe. So I think looking yeah. at things like that, it just shows you that there are worlds that exist outside of our personal worlds. And it's, it's good yeah. to be refreshed in that way. So I take all that culture and try to apply it to my work and to conversations, but it's, it's a blessing. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, true. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, it, man. Can I piggyback on that or, or just sort of tease it out a little bit? Um, when I think of, first and foremost, I'm, I'm, I'm smiling because um, one of my uh, classmates when I was in grad school, her fiance was from Zen and she's like, you gotta go. Like it, she, she swears the Zimbabwe is like the best place that ever go. You don't go no place else. You need to go to Zimbabwe. It's like, okay. Um, but I also think comparatively about the different life coaching clients that I've had throughout Africa, as well as family members and friends that I have. And, and you're right, when I look, for example, one of my best friends is married to a Nigerian and it's different. And we were literally just having a conversation the other day about exactly what you said about going back and the food difference and losing weight, because she said here, her kids have food allergies. They have so many different issues with how the food is processed here. And it took her a minute to realize like, okay, wait a minute, half of their DNA is Nigerian. And so they're not internally, their body has just never properly adjusted to how we process food here. But she said, Lauren, every time we go back to Nigeria, and they usually go a couple of times a year. She said, every time we go to Nigeria to visit, she was like, nobody has any issues with food allergies. There's no issues whatsoever. There's no issues with their eczema outbreaks. There's no issues with asthma or, or anything. And she said it, it finally clicked for her. It's because the food is processed so much differently and that it's just healthier. It's just healthier, the, the relationships that, that they have with food, how food is processed, how food is hit, everything 
is just so much different and it's so much better. So I just wanted to add that because I was like, yeah, Val just said that to me. Yeah, I've, I've even heard that about Europe as well. I had a friend who went to Europe yeah. and drinking wine and eating steak and still mm -hmm. lost weight. And it was wow. just, here in America, that's, that's something that we really have a problem with is food. Yeah. The way the food is processed. Absolutely. Man, Micah, um, thank you for sharing that, man. I, I really appreciate your perspective on that, man. And I think a lot of people should really take it upon themselves to immerse themselves in other cultures outside of the ones that they just know to be as black and white, because we're more than just black and white people, you know? Yeah. So I really appreciate your perspective on that. Um, we were talking about before the show, I had my son uh, with us when we were uh, talking before the show started and we were mentioning how, you know, um, soccer in America doesn't necessarily have um, the popularity or the respect of the other major sports in America, like baseball, basketball, football, um, and things like that. But I think it would be make a case that it is rising. We just saw earlier this week, um, enter Miami, the MLS team down there just signed Lionel Messi, um, to a groundbreaking deal, a, a phenomenal contract for him and everything. And also for the MLS. Um, so obviously the popularity is starting to gain some traction. Um, talk to us about how um, soccer culture, one, can grow in the country, but also to grow within the culture of, uh, you know, African-Americans, also other people of color um, and how they can get their kids involved in soccer. What are some things that they can learn about soccer? Because we talked about it earlier, you know, football and basketball and baseball aren't the only sports that offer life lessons. Every sport offers their own set of life lessons. So what were some life lessons also that you learned from soccer that can be helpful? I think one of the biggest I think one of the biggest things you learn following soccer is cultural competency because it's such a worldwide sport. My favorite team is a team in England called Liverpool. And right. so I've be, just from following them, I've learned the difference in English accents. Cause you know, here in America, we like to do like the whole, oh, pip pip cheerio, but they don't all talk like that. And so just following my team, I learned regional accents like Liverpool, they talk like this, London, they talk like this, blah, 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 blah. And then even on the team, there's different religions, you know, Muslims, Christians, different people, people from South America, people from Europe, people from Asia. And you just learn so much about the culture, about the name pronunciation, about the way of life, just from following. So I think, I think, I think soccer is like, it's almost like a cure for cultural ignorance in a way. Mm -hmm. Because if you follow it, it just connects you to the entire world because the entire world plays it. And you'll learn so much just from following it. I think um, it also teaches about interpersonal relationships because it's a team sport, just like football and basketball. So you have different dynamics. You have leaders on the team. You have the head coach. You have assistants, mm -hmm. directors. And they all kind of have to blend together to compete for an entire season. I think it also, it also teaches strategy because points are measured differently. Like in a league in soccer, you get three points for a win, one point for a draw, zero for a loss. And so when you think about racking up the most points at the end of the season, it's different to like in the NBA playoffs, there's, there's knockouts. And if you lose four games, you're done. It's a right. different strategic thing in soccer. So the approach is sometimes different to how you might play or how you might coach a team. And so mm -hmm. I think stuff like that just provides like a, a unique uh, learning experience for people who may not be into soccer. And then the passion, that's probably the biggest thing. Um, if I, 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 I've been wanting to go to Liverpool for the longest time. Like they, when I watch the stadium and how they come together, they have like chances they sing for individual players. And it's like, like people will die over this. Like they'll die over this sport. And it's, the passion is crazy. So I think getting to experience and taste that is just really interesting for people who may not have known in the past. How has soccer for you helped you connect with maybe some of the uh, lower income neighborhoods of the Miami-Dade County area? Um, and how can soccer kind of also provide another avenue for those, uh, for those kids to know that it doesn't just have to be, you have to be an entertainer. You don't have to be in the streets. You don't have to be a football player, a basketball player. Now you can play soccer too. How, how has soccer helped you connect with some of those kids in those areas? And what, and you also mentioned, well, I'll save that question after you answer that one. Okay. Um, so I think it's helped me to just see the people, see people where they are and meet them where they are. When I'm like, when I was running my nonprofit, 
you had to meet people where they were in their journey and then try to help them continue. Whether it's like, I have dreams of going to college and getting a scholarship, or I wanna try out for my program at my school, or I wanna learn so I can just have fun. I think that was kind of the biggest lesson for me or the biggest, like I guess, learning opportunity for me was just to meet people where they are. And when we talk about underserved communities, looking at the struggles specifically socioeconomically that tie into their sport. So things like not having a water bottle, things like not having Gatorade, things that might seem like a given for other people, you know, like, right. oh, we have orange slices at halftime, blah, 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 blah. Not everybody has that. So just seeing people where they are and helping them use soccer as kind of a bridge to get to another place in life. Even for me, that's what I did with the sport. I think that was what I learned the most. And that's what I can say to people is that you can use soccer to elevate your life in so many different ways. And there's so many different careers in soccer. There's, you could be a scout, you could be a director, you could be a coach, you could be a nutritionist. And it, there's, there's just so many little nuances you can find and you can really find your niche outside of the typical routes in life. I think it's, it's another option for people to consider who are trying to figure out what their purpose is and how they can pursue something greater. So that's what I'd say. Dr. Pitts, did you have a question? It like you were ready to chime in. No, not not yet. My my wheels are turning, and I'm go ahead. Go ahead. My, I'm, well, I'm, my my mind is spinning. So so um, you kind of answered the next question I was going to ask, but I will I will paint it like this. You mentioned how you know in order to really reach the elite levels of uh, club soccer here in America and things like that, obviously it costs money, and you know that is one thing that we notice for other sports too, whether it's AAU basketball, AAU football, and things like that. In order to really get to those national competitions, those national camps. Um, in football, they have the Elite 11 camp, which is the top quarterback high school camp for high school quarterbacks in America. They have um, OT7, which is the largest seven on seven tournament uh, for football players. Uh, basketball, they have um, the, um, it's the EYBL tournament uh, that Nike hosts. And things like, these elite top tournaments that take a lot of money to get into. What are some of the things you might tell a soccer player who might have a similar situation like you where it's not a lack of talent or a lack of effort, but it's a lack of financial resources. What are some things that you've uncovered um, since being a coach and being on the other side of being a player that might be helpful for other soccer players to know about the financial, um, I guess the financial aspect of soccer and really trying to get good and get yourself seen and heard out there in the country, but also the world too. I think the thing I'd say is don't, <clears throat> feeling of limitation on what you can do. For me growing up and experiencing difficult financial challenges, there were certain times when I was pessimistic, when I was like, I don't know if I could do that. I'll tell you one example. There's a tournament in Orlando every year called the Disney Wide World of Sports. You might, you might have heard of it. It's yep. like- They got every sport down there, yep. Yeah. Like one of the biggest things for youth sports. Right. There was, a there was a time when my team, my academy was competing and I had to sell candles to go mm -hmm. um, to be able to afford to go. But I did mm -hmm. it and I could have just said, I'm I'm done. I, I'm, I'm finished. I can't do it. But I found yeah. a way and I found a right. really unorthodox way to be able to afford to go. So I mm -hmm. think there's there. I mean, I can't say for everybody, they'll have a specific like leg that they could pull on to 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 get to that place but look at really unorthodox unconventional ways of targeting your success and never say like it's impossible because if you can find a way in a lot of cases and i think with even with social media nowadays you can have a direct line to scouts you can email them your videotapes you can bother people on linkedin i've seen athletes get signed to agencies by bothering people on linkedin hey I'm a player, I play forward, this is my highlight tape. And they'll be sending it, I'll see it on my timeline like 10 times a day. I'm like, mm -hmm. are you really going hard for this? But they're mm -hmm. committed and eventually it right. ends working for something. Mm -hmm. So I would mm -hmm. definitely say take advantage of the digital tools we have today. If this was like 1965, you might not have that, but today you mm -hmm. can find any contact list, any academy, any mm -hmm. scout just online. So think mm -hmm. about things and really just Never limit yourself because some of the things you would think are impossible, you'll reach certain heights and look back and say, wow, what if I didn't keep going? I would have never gotten here. So 
I would just say to keep that, keep that hope. So now I want to add to that. Because <laughs> I, I was spinning and I was I was trying to figure out how I wanted to collect my thoughts and if I wanted to say part of what I was thinking about saying now and blah, 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 blah. Um, but Micah's right. So there's, I was, part of my debate was, so we have an organization here and I, I can't, I'm afraid to minimize my screen to pull the exact name of the organization. But um, so we have a foundation here uh, in the DFW Metroplex that was created just for that purpose, right? The, um, the family uh, lost their daughter. Um, she was a, a scholar athlete and they lost her daughter. They lost their daughter and they started the foundation in her memory. And the whole purpose of their foundation is to provide financial resources to kids who want to participate in sports and just don't have the means to be able to do that. So they offer that um, that support. But then in addition to this, and this is the part that I was really grappling with, because I was like, yeah, now what? Go ahead and say it. Um, so part of what is going to be happening, um, and Ronnie, I haven't even told you about it, so surprise! Uh -oh. <laughs> But nothing bad. Um, so part of what's going to be happening um, starting our our upcoming season is, as many of you know, I shared in a in a previous show that I made the transition from sole proprietor to LLC, and my LLC is Legacy Counseling and Life Coaching LLC. And part of what we're going to be doing back when I was living in Barbados. Um, just during some some quiet time of meditation one day it had dropped in my spirit to start a memorial scholarship fund. And at that time, which was back in 2014 and 2015, to start a memorial scholarship fund in memory of my grandfather, my great aunt, and one of my uncles. Well, it was maybe two, three weeks ago now, I was in the kitchen, putting dishes away, unloading the dishwasher to home nine yards, and I'm gonna do this without crying. Um, but it was clear as day. It was clear as day. And what dropped in my spirit is that I am going to, in addition to those, and I'm gonna give those names in just a moment, I am going to be creating a memorial scholarship fund in memory of my first husband, who I've shared you know, numerous times that he was a phenomenal, phenomenal scholar athlete. Um, and he passed away, um, actually it'll be six years on the 14th um, that he passed away. Um, so I'm going to be creating a, a scholarship in his memory. But in addition to that, my agency is also going to be providing athletic sponsorship where, you know, obviously there's certain criteria that will need to be met, but we will be able to assist families in helping um, to pay those financial obligations associated with their children being involved in sports <clears throat> as, as someone who was, you know, the mother of a scholar athlete, I, I know it's expensive. It's super, 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 super expensive. And just seeing my niece being involved in cheerleading and, and previously gymnastics and wrestling and my nephews being involved in baseball, football and wrestling, it adds up really fast. So when you're talking about families that are at the lower level you know, of the socioeconomic status, it, it it's hard. It's really, really hard. And these kids, you know, there's a variety of outlets, but they need to be able to have that outlet. So I'm going to make that this first public service announcement now. So September the 1st, um, the scholarship application cycle for the Lester and Dorothy Pitts Memorial Scholarship which students applying for that scholarship, they actually have to be seniors in high school. They need to be planning to major in college in agricultural sciences or family and consumer sciences. The elder Anthony L. Pitts Memorial Scholarship, they need to be majoring in divinity, um, religious studies or education um, or theology. The Pauline C. Pitts Memorial Scholarship, they need to be majoring in education or African-American studies, and they need to be attending an HBCU in the fall of 2024. And then the Craig L. Parsley Memorial Scholarship Fund, that's the athletic scholarship. That's the one for scholar athletes that are 
that have played sports in high school that are planning to play at the collegiate level doesn't make a difference what division. However, well, I guess that's, they do have to be going to an HBCU. So we are going to be providing those memorial scholarships. There's going to be two awardees for each scholarship. There's going to be an awardee announced at Salem High School in Salem, New Jersey, which is me and Craig's alma mater. Um, there is going to be two for the Anthony outfits. So it'll be one awardee for each of the four scholarships I named at Salem High School in Salem, New Jersey. And it'll be one uh, awardee for each of the scholarships here um, at high schools at the, you know, wherever the awardee is at a high school um, in Tarrant County uh, here in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Um, so those applications, that cycle will open on September the 1st and um, will close on March the 29th. And those awardee announcements will be made in April of 2024. And there'll be more to come about that, how to get the application, how to apply, where to apply and all of those things. But, but the biggest part of it, um, I'm, I'm excited about all of the scholarships, but particularly the one honoring um, my first husband and the one being able to provide sponsorship for families for their kids that, that wanna play sports is just, it's, it just squeezes my heart. It's just, it's just such a big deal um, to me. And, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. I'm really, really excited. So that part right there, right there, right there, right there. So yeah. Like, Got my, my, like my little sound effect. <laughs> you no sound effects, you nut. You ain't hear my little. No, you said the crowd went crazy. It won't play my. You know what? That's I had a little round. I had a little round of applause for you because that's dope. I, you did actually tell me about that last week. You um, I know we started we started the conversation, but our guest from last week had logged in. Oh, okay. Um, but you did tell me that I didn't. You didn't tell me when it was starting. But yeah. no. Congratulations. I think that's really phenomenal. Um, yeah. We need more of that, especially in, especially yeah. in, in our community and things like that, where we see the talent. And a lot of times we see talent in underserved areas and places where they don't have access. Both yeah. of you all mentioned how, yes, training is expensive. I, I remember yeah. when I was in high school um, to afford football training. It was $50 a week. It was yeah. not something my parents had, you know, at the time. Yeah. So, you know, you had to make ends meet and whatnot. But yeah, you know, to be able to have affordable training and have uh, access yep. to uh, financial resources for players who might not have that at home. We need yep. that because that should not be the reason you don't be able to get the chance to right. reach your potential. And that's yep. what we really mean by village. It takes a village to help right. people get to where they need to get to. So shout out to you, Dr. Piss, for that. Um, Micah, I think my, I guess my final question that I uh, have for you and everything for today um, is really more so you know, you've been a coach now for the last uh, six years and everything. You've done a lot of phenomenal things and, and, and whatnot. Um, and so I'm going to set this up because it's kind of, it's not a weird question, but, you know, it, with football, you know, it's really kind of, you just have football in America. You have the NFL and that's kind of it. So, you know, when we talk to football players and they say, I want to make it to the NFL and things like that, you know, we kind of understand that. In NBA, you know, that's the biggest league and stuff like that. Soccer is a little bit different. You know, here in America, soccer, you know, MLS is, is a phenomenal accomplishment if you make it and everything. But we know here in America, this is one of the few major sports leagues where it's not the biggest and best league in the world. Um, so my first part to you is, what do you tell players when you come, when you coach them and they come to you for the first time and, you, and they hear you, I want to be a professional soccer player. I want to go play in Europe. Or I want to play in the MLS. What are some things that you can help, you know, young soccer players and their families know about what it really means to have that achievable dream and also too what are some things you would like to tell coaches along the way of helping players who have those dreams too and help them put in perspective that you can be more than just a soccer player yourself so for the first part i would say first of all i always say it's possible i always i always try to reassure them and let them know that they're not shooting beyond what's what's real right because it is possible and i was just reading a story about and old people who now plays for a big team in England who was a second division college player and wasn't even the starting the starting goalkeeper. Now he's mm -hmm. like playing in England and he came from America playing playing D2 in college. So mm -hmm. and there's a lot of stories like that. So I always tell them it is possible. The biggest thing with trying to make it as a pro is how much you're playing. A lot of the mm -hmm. professionals when you interview them, 
they're playing all the time. They're playing mm-hmm. all in the streets, wherever. They're always touching the ball. They're always kicking the ball. They're always moving the ball, always refining those skills. I mean, not to the point of physical burnout, but as right. far as like that perfectionism, they're always working at it. And then when you get to the highest levels, you can easily tell who's been always playing and who has been doing like a couple practices a week. There's a clear level there. So I'm, I always tell my players, away from our sessions, away from our program, always keep a ball with you, always be knocking the ball, always be putting the ball, you know, playing around, going to, going to the field, playing pickup with your friends. Keep, keep, keep doing that because the more you touch the ball, the more you, the more you refine your skills. You're teaching yourself things that a coach may not be able to teach you. You were talking earlier about, I think it was muscle memory you were talking about, and that's right. big in any sport. There are certain things that a coach is not going to explicitly say, but you pick mm-hmm. up on the nuances by playing. I'm always encouraging players there. And then I think going back to digital tools is taking advantage of those. Highlight tapes are really important today because once you have one of those and it's, it's, it's decent enough where it shows your skill, you can send it everywhere and anywhere. And I encourage people to do that. Even put it on social media, put it on TikTok, do whatever. I've seen people get signed off of TikTok videos before. Mm. So I'm always encouraging my athletes to do that. And then for the coaches, I think one of the important things is to recognize that you're in a position of service to your players. There are a lot, I've, I've run into a lot of issues with coaches who are like, I'm building a dynasty here. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that desire may inconvenience the athletes who have higher aspirations. Mm-hmm. You might want to build a dynasty with a local club and a local chapter, but your players need X, Y, and Z that may not be in alignment with what you're doing. And you can't just say, I'm going to hold on to them and not share information because they need to be a part of my thing. You need to be in service of your players and their needs because it's so fulfilling to look back on a player who's now killing it at the highest level and be like, I was able to be in service of that guy and help him get to whatever he wanted to get to. So I think it's really about framing your mentality and and saying, how can I be in service of my athletes? I think Dr. Fitz, you were bringing up earlier Mm-hmm. Understanding the players' needs and their wants—that's yeah, yeah. critical. That's yeah. critical. So I think that's what I would say to coaches. Thank you, man. Thank you, man. Michael, you were a phenomenal guest, man. Thank you so much for joining us today, man. I really appreciate your perspective, your insight. Uh, I've learned a lot today about soccer. Yeah. This is also about culture um, and just what it really means to. I always tell people, you know, the answer is always no until you ask the question. And, you know, as you can see today, I like to ask a lot of questions, man, but as always an opportunity to learn something new. And I've learned a lot from you today, man. So thank you for that. Um, tell the people, man, what you got going on, how they can reach you, how they can get your books, how they can get a copy of anything you've EP'd. Let the people know where they can get you at, man. Yeah, so I'm on all social medias. It's just my first and last name, Michael Dewani. So you can find me on social media there. My books are on Amazon. They're available worldwide. So whatever country you're in, you can go get them. My latest book, I think, speaking about mental health in sports and really that importance on mental health, my latest novel, some of the reactions of of people on their own wellness journeys responding to that has been just amazing to see. So I really think people who are in tune with this platform will really enjoy, especially my latest book. It's a fiction. You could get lost in the story. There's different characters of different age groups. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. it's for everybody, but it's a really important story about mental health and also some of the environmental factors that influence mental health and the stigmas. Yes. So I definitely say to anyone who's interested, Amazon, you can just put my name, Micah Dewani, or Battle Scars and Blossoms, and you can find it there. Mm-hmm. I'm also available mm-hmm. by email. I mean, I don't know if anyone wants to contact me, but if you do, I'm available by email, my last name, Dewani at Outlook.com. So that's that's where you can find me. And, and thank you thank you guys so much for having me. I had a, I had a fun time talking and, and learning yeah. from you as well. So thank you. Yeah. It's been a pleasure, man. Dr. Piss, you want to close us out? I will. I will. So, Micah, your family. Look, we 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 we, we go ahead and put that out there now. So you got to come back. We, we're, we'll be finalizing 
the show topics um, for the 2023-2024 season. Um, we'll, Ronnie and I will be be finalizing them over the summer because we just have two episodes left in this current season that we're in. Ronnie's going to be out next week. So Ted Wright is our guest co-host, a phenomenal lineup um, of guests next week as well. But Micah, please, 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 we'll send you that topic list to see if there's anything of interest to you. We would love to have you come back and share more of what you're doing and how you're doing it, why you're doing it. We didn't get a chance to talk a lot about why you decided to become a psychology major in college. So we definitely want to hear more about that and what you plan to do with that psychology degree, because as we know, there's a tremendous need for mental health support all over the country and Florida. Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> that governor. <y> <laughs> If you ever if you ever decide to be a clinician, Baby. you ain't never gotta leave Florida. I can tell you What's that. Look, I can tell, mean, anytime I hear something on the news that's yeah. just absolutely outlandish, the first thing I think, no offense to Florida, is they gotta be Floridian. They gotta be. You know, look, but between the between the governor and some of the other people who have residences there, who shall be nameless, y'all got some stuff going on down there. Um, but definitely, we we there's definitely a need all over the country, and and Florida is 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 definitely um, in, in the mix too, as far as support yeah. being needed. And and I'll just go ahead and say, um, with the the atrocious behavior that your LGBTQ community is experiencing there, um, I cannot even imagine the magnitude of clinical support that is needed for the community there. Um, and I am in the process of getting my licensure there if they don't hear this and tell me that I can't have it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us, Micah. Tell my thank you so much for being a diehard Dallas Cowboys fan. I love her. I love her. I love her. <laughs> tell her I will, I will. Oh yeah, she's a big excellence. Greatness and excellence. Um and being a fellow Jamaican as well, like she she is a winner, winner chicken dinner for me. I absolutely positively love it. Um, thank you so much for that. Um, and I think that is it. Everybody have a wonderful, wonderful Saturday. I got folks in town, so I'm about to get going. I'm about That's to go right. spend my mom's money. <laughs> uh, ain't nothing wrong with that. Michael, once again, man, thank you for joining us. That's episode 128. Be sure to be back here next Saturday. I won't be here, but Dr. Piss and Ted Wright gonna hold it down with our special guest. Yes. I'll be back for our season finale. Until then, y'all have a great weekend. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye, everybody. <laughs>